401-3662 and let them know that you'd like to contribute your vehicle to KPFA or visit kpfa.org for more information. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday, happy endings are the rule, so divide up in darkness from the ones who walk in light light them up boys there's your picture drop the shadows this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Did you hear that last show? Wow. I tell you, I am just hooked on this Neanderthal thing. I've talked about it before, I know. Some people get tired of my yammering about how my father disowned me, threw me out of the house when he read my old journals and diaries. I'd locked him in a suitcase in my closet and gone off to college, but I had written that he was certainly, uh, well, I didn't say what percentage, but that he was descended uh, from Neanderthals on account of because he was a big ape, you know. Anyway, I, I think he really should have understood that I was just a rebellious a teenager. Anyway, I love that show about uh, evolution. Carl Zimmer, the writer here, he writes for Discovery Magazine. Now, I've got to get his book, Evolution, because I haven't read it. And uh, I think I think uh, there's something, what is it? It's a, a, about racism, I guess, you know. This whole business, I saw one television program in which a number of students were being tested, their DNA, you know, to see what percentage of their DNA was Neanderthal, you know. And frankly, those that had oh as much as four percent, well, they were pretty embarrassed, and they kind of looked at each other funny, and there wasn't anything uh in the way of physical evidence, you know uh but definitely, how oh, you could see them looking at each other's features. This stuff is so old, and I guess sick, but I don't know. We're still trying to define what is a human, my own favorite theory. Uh, it's not mine. It's Elaine Morgan is one of the best proponents. Uh, she wrote a book called The Descent of Woman. And it's the theory that we, we human beings, hominoids, uh, homo, homo sapien, uh, the, what is it? the species that has survived that about four million years ago we went through a period of evolution in which we were in the sea in the ocean it's the theory about an aquatic ape i just love it you know 
shows you webbed fingers and toes, you know, the kinds of things. Anyway, Elaine Morgan's book, The Descent of Woman, has a wonderful spin. Mostly she talks about sex and the reasons why uh, even sexual dysfunction can be traced to the... uh, uh, the eons we spent in the ocean, in the sea. That's why women have longer hair, you know, so that kids can hang on to it. Never mind. It's just the sort of theory that delighted me when I was uh, younger and more imaginative. Maybe I could read that book on KPFA, except that I know I uh, get lots of feedback about how it's utter nonsense. Uh, what I like about it is that it allows us to does that to see ourselves as part of the Gaia well the Gaia theory about how we're all uh, connected and that we are of course just one of the animals and uh, that uh, lots of things about us uh, can be traced to earlier earlier uh, evolved um, well not not so much Neanderthals, but just think of all the things we might have been or could have been like four million years ago. Never mind all that. I was looking for The Descent of Woman, that book, last night, and I uh, I couldn't find it, and I made a mistake and turned on the radio at four o'clock in the morning, and finally I listened a little bit, and they were all defining terrorism of course and the crimescape invaded my my tired little head and I got to thinking I have a little book in which I write down you know the crime du jour the horror of the moment and uh, it's so strange how it all collapses into one one hideous scene man's inhumanity to man and uh Woman, yes. Uh, 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 today's funeral is, of course, for the murdered teenagers. Uh, the Israeli kids, those three children uh, who have died, uh, been killed and found, I guess it was three weeks ago they were killed. At any rate, that got me to the shelf where I have, oh, many, many many, many things about young dissidents. I I found the book as a journal, a little play by Rachel Corey. She's the, you will remember, a young uh, American activist and a brilliant writer, actually. What a shame to lose her. She had such a way with words. Anyway, Rachel Corey, of course, though, she, she was killed by an Israeli bulldozer. Uh, the bulldozer was attempting to level a Palestinian home. And uh, I, I I thought, oh, God, I, I can't read this. It's, politically, it's on, she's on the wrong side. The sorrow of parents when their children die, of course, is pretty much the same. But uh, <laughs> it's all wrong, you know, to compare uh, Rachel Corey's parents with those who are mourning today, um, oh, these labels and conflicts. For me, there is only one label. That is the label, uh, oh, let's see, mother and child uh, creates 
what is the word? Miasma. A miasma is a mother's curse. It comes about for the crimes against the mother, the murderer, say, of her children. Uh, anyway, uh, those boys, I thought, actually, since they were, what is that, um, obviously innocents, uh, they were just victims, perhaps, can't compare them with Rachel Corey because she was on the front line. She was out there courting disaster. I mean, she was trying to stop the destruction of Palestinian homes. Uh, does that make her more responsible for her own death? These things drive a person crazy. Uh, uh huh. I thought maybe I would just give up the way I always do. Turn on, uh, on-demand television and go back to these wonderful series coming out of HBO Escapism I've never had uh, anything so exciting to watch <laughs> at four in the morning as these fabulous shows like uh, oh well Penny Dreadful lately and Game of Thorns uh, first of all though I turned on uh Rod Steiger in The Pawnbroker. I felt like watching something about uh, the Jewish Holocaust. Remind myself of history, Israel, uh, all that stuff. Um, the Pawnbroker is a film from 1965. It's half a century ago. Now, it's a movie about a Holocaust survivor. Rod Steiger plays the man dead to the world. Now, the movie was made 20 years after the end of World War II. Thus, 70 years ago is the date for those horrors, the horrors that uh, were discovered. Let's call it the, when the Americans liberated the camps and the pictures came and we learned of the horrors uh, I remember my mother trying to prevent my going to the local movie house in La Jolla but I always managed to get to the movies no matter what she did and I did see the films and I did go into shock and I still remember what it was like I was alone I wasn't with friends when I saw the films uh bulldozers once again bulldozers uh, pushing mountains of bodies into common graves uh, anyway uh, I what is it uh, I was stuck with the well the inhumanity today that soaks the world of men you know still it's still an everyday occurrence it doesn't go away um, it stains the souls of every woman and man and sooner or later every child on earth. Uh, children have been crying for centuries. I think it's the same children. How was it? Sylvia Plath wrote, There's always a bloody baby in the air. Now, Pawnbroker is a classic film, of course, much admired. Now, when it first hit the screen, I was 30 years old, and 
So many people were truly shocked by the movie. Uh, differently shocked, of course, than they were by the pictures of the Holocaust. But uh, that movie was so grim, uh, its effects on uh, Survivor. Uh, many people warned against it, saying that uh, the movie should uh, should be hidden, uh, shouldn't let Jews see the movie because it was so uh, hopeless. It was such a portrait of despair. It wouldn't be good for them, you know. <laughs> a hopelessness in the face of reality. There's a wonderful scene when Rod Steiger tries to explain to a young Chicano man uh, what it means to be a Jew. The young man, when he finishes, uh, when Rod Steiger finishes, the young man says, You are a great teacher, Mr. Nazerman. Uh, anyway, when I watched it, I remember how frightening it was uh, seeing it for the first time, all those flashbacks of Nazi concentration camps. That sort of thing was new on the screen. Uh, in those days, 65, uh, we see Ron, uh, Rod Steiger uh, forced, <laughs> forced to watch Jewish women being subjected to Nazi lust. The trigger for his flashback to, uh, let's call it a, a whorehouse in the camps, it's a scene in which a beautiful African-American woman comes in his pawn shop uh, tries to get money, raise money for the, her Chicano boyfriend. That's the fellow that works for the pawnbroker. Anyway, she takes off her blouse to show the pawnbroker her breasts, you know, the goods she has for sale. And later, he goes uh, to the local crime boss and refuses to launder the money which that crime boss is making from the whorehouse where the young woman works and uh, she had told the pawnbroker that it meant her life if he told on her told her boss that she was uh, selling without his split going to the uh, coffers of the bad guys anyway now this Harlem crime boss the one who owns the whorehouse is, if anything, more of a realist than the pawnbroker. Uh, he kind of says, more or less, where did you think your money came from? The pawnbroker has been laundering the money. Um, the, uh, what, whoremaster give him cash, and the pawnbroker then writes him a check, you know, the sort of thing you do when you launder money. Anyway, uh, anyway uh, the thing is... The young woman, well, the young woman is not exactly pathetic, but she's obviously selling her goods in the wrong place. She is worried, of course, about being caught. Uh, actually, there's a lot of familiar cliches uh, in the movie. All these characters uh, are... You know, we've seen them around for years, but it's the performances, the actors that made this special. It's Rod Steiger's greatest work, unless you unless you count, uh, oh, what was his masterpiece? Uh, in the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier, yes. That came out in 67. It's a whole different ball of wax. Anyway, messages are always beside the point. Cinema 
is all about style. Uh, let's face it, it's all about art. The greatest art form of the 20th century. Uh, the pawnbroker is black and white poetry. It's a profound portrait of survivor guilt. It has a very modern message that the corruption, the evil, the uh, malaise, that is the mother's curse, a malaise, miasma, yes. All this is ongoing. Man's inhumanity to man and, and to woman never ends. Uh, just the way we are goes back to the first humans. Uh, at least somebody thinks so. Not me. Uh, I think it's been, you know, fairly recent <laughs> that we've become so wicked. Um, I think ancient man, well, you know, wouldn't have survived if the people hadn't cooperated like the fingers on a hand. They still do, of course. Obviously, more eat than starve, uh, more live than die. Anyway, this pawnbroker, uh, he, he suffered, of course, in the concentration camps. And the point is made that there, in that situation, there was nothing he could do, nothing he could fight against, that he was utterly helpless. Now, he does then recognize, after all, 20 years after the fact, that the evil he's encountering now here uh, in Harlem, when he allows himself to be the front for this criminal, uh, this man who is exploiting the poor and corrupting the young woman, he... He gets it suddenly. I mean, he can do something, even if it fails. He can act. Uh, he recognizes that his dark view of life, his pessimism, can and does seriously harm those people he knows and loves. Uh, yes, <laughs> as is a teacher, as his uh, young uh, apprentice says he's teaching despair he's teaching that money is all that's what he tells the young man the young man of course takes the lesson to heart and uh, uh, tragedy follows anyway James Baldwin used to tell us we must never never tell the children there is no hope what hit me as I watched this uh, film, The Pawnbroker, in 1965, what hit me was the 1960s liberal spin on even the darkest of human sufferings, you remember, uh, was coming along about that time, 1965. Wow. Things were changing. There was a, a, an incredible breakthrough, illumination, uh, Anyway, the movie Rock Peters is genuinely frightening as the Harlem crime boss. And I thought, you know, he's a, a bad guy. Uh, for the first time, we saw a uh, black actor playing uh, uh, the part of someone who is truly, truly wicked. Uh, that's against the cliches of the time. Uh, now, 
Of course, we see that the pawnbroker, the once victim, is shocked into feeling something, but it turns out that what he feels is fear. <laughs> fear of Brock Peters so much for coming out of one's depressive state and becoming an activist. Now, if this movie was a reality sandwich back in 1965, what does a new generation of screenwriters find to, uh, what do they say, stretch the envelope? <laughs> Obviously. Writers want to dig deeper, to get new insights, you know, peel the onion, search for new views, ways to see the human condition. Uh, I think of feminism as being the great breakthrough of my lifetime. Who knew women? <laughs> women weren't happy. Anyway, uh, it turns out, of course, that uh, humans aren't happy. Equality, right? Uh, anyway, human psychology consciousness is this Pandora's box. Uh, we're discovering more and newer Monsters, plagues, uh, demons. Uh, <laughs> I, I think when we open the box or look under the rock of Revelation, I, I just see that the devil isn't much different today than uh, he or she was in the past. I think demonic forces just find new costumes, new masks, uh, a new hat. Old wine, new bottles. Uh, or maybe it's the other way around. Anyway, in 1965, the pawnbroker was pretty sentimental. Come right down to it. Uh, great sadness. Back then, we didn't, uh, we didn't pay much attention. We, we assumed that Judeo-Christian values were, uh, were uh, kind of universal or eternal. Uh, that sort of thing was embedded in our consciousness. Uh, well, in Hollywood films, anyway. Uh, no one expected anything other than that, uh, you know. What is it? Oscar Wilde says that the good ended happily and the bad ended uh, in failure. You know the sort of thing. He said that. Oscar Wilde said that is what fiction means. <laughs> anyway, uh, the novels in the 19th century, I've been reading those lately for escapism, yes, uh, had all those values down pat, those magnificent Victorians. Uh, then I thought, uh, yes, of the Gothic novels. Uh, how did we get from 1965, let's see, to, to today? I think of... Uh, the breakthrough, we had a TV show called The Sopranos, <laughs> in which I realized that we had reinvented the the wicked stuff, you know. Uh, I think uh, writers and thinkers um, have always known what it means to experience hell on earth. Uh, they've known about what suffering can do to man's spirit, you know. Think of Jude the Obscure, humiliation, the wretched of the earth. How did we get from that Pieta, those portraits of pity, to um, this new 
this new uh, gothic, what would we call it? Uh, it's the new play, the new, the next best theater. I watched the final episode of the first season of a Showtime series called Penny Dreadful. It's a gothic Victorian melodrama. The term Penny Dreadful refers to the the little horror books, the uh, they would now be mystery stories, detective stories. No, not quite that. Yeah, they were about, um, oh, let's say Mary Shelley's Frankenstein would be the, the top drawer uh, gothic Victorian tale. Uh, but these new shows, well, they, they have the awesome production values and, and they have romantic characters. The costumes from the 1880s in Penny Dreadful are a knockout. They have uh, characters with mysterious past lives, melancholia all over the place. Melancholia and neurosis were big in the 19th century. Uh, now, how did we get from the, uh, what is it, the soap operas of the mid-20th century to this new, this new crop of stories, tales, plots in Penny Dreadful at the end of the first season? We hear a Roman Catholic priest ask a beautiful but possessed young woman if she really wants to be normal. Okay? Now this, I think, is the new question for the playwrights, right? Do we not embrace the devil? I remember Emily Dickinson saying that you know, when she quit going to church, that maybe Christ had no use for her, but there was a, a, a darker a darker individual um, uh, who would not deny her. <laughs> I must find that little bit. I think it's fascinating. Emily Dickinson writes, uh, I love a look of agony, or I like a look of agony because I know it's true. Right? Reality may be partly a recognition of sadism as part of our reality or what is that uh, it's us I think of it as a kind of Janus face uh, the dark and the light yes who really does want to be normal now the priest does tell this woman that the back of the hand of God is of course touched by the hand of the devil um, remember Lucifer well Lucifer means the bringer of light, but to become lucid is, of course, to gain knowledge. Eve, right. Remember that apple? The actress in this show, in Penny Dreadful, is named Eva. Eva Green. A fascinating actress. Uh, not so much beautiful as exotic, erotic. Uh, a Showtime's cable network actually featured her in Camelot a while back. She played Morgan Le Fay, King Arthur's dark, uh, wicked sister, you remember. She had female magic, very dangerous back in the uh, Christian days, uh, witchcraft. Most of those legends 
Merlin and all those people, you know. I'm always talking about the ways in which femininity has been demonized. Uh, now, I certainly had a lot of trouble with Penny Dreadful at first. I kept turning it off. I still do because it's gory. It is really violent. Uh, I keep thinking, do we need all this blood? Isn't it just too much? But the truth is that I'm hooked on these Victorian characters. They've got Dorian Gray, and they've got a wolf, a werewolf. He's an American uh, cowboy sharpshooter. They've got an African explorer, assorted vampires. I've got Victor Frankenstein and his male creations. I wish I had time to uh, draw you a picture. <laughs> For me, it's enough to have... Arias from Tristan and it is sold up uh, playing Maldorian Gray has an orgy uh, in his mansion I'll be back again next Tuesday with more of this nonsense this has been Jennifer Stone till then go easy and if you can't go easy go as easy as you can Foundation is in the process of revising its bylaws, the rules under which the organization must be operated. The Foundation is considering seven bylaws amendments concerning in-person meetings of the board, the election of station representative directors, proportional reduction in size of the national board, and other amendments. To read the proposed changes, you can visit Pacifica.org. The national board will vote on July 17th. The five local station boards will vote within 60 days of that date. To be approved, each proposal must receive a majority vote of the Pacifica National Board and of three of the five stations boards. 